The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon and good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to this episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. On this very rainy and dismal day in New York City, we'd like to sort of enliven you uh, with a very interesting program today. We are talking about the archaeology of Madagascar. Most people, probably even those in the listening audience, are most familiar with Madagascar, probably through the kids' movie and the series of movies, uh, Madagascar 1, 2, and 3, which are extremely popular. But those of us who are in archaeology or in anthropology look at Madagascar a little bit differently as an island in which a lot of key developments occurred, especially in the evolutionary chain. Uh, Lemurs are certainly very closely associated to uh, and with uh, Madagascar, and certainly these are at the beginning of the evolutionary chain that leads directly to Homo sapiens. Uh, we're not going to be talking about that today as much. Uh, we will be talking about, however, semiotics or symbols and signs, as my guest, Dr. Uh, Zoe Crossland, uh, described the topic in, in uh, a certain amount of accuracy and precision, really. Um, archaeology is very much about symbolism. It's about connections between the living and the past, and Madagascar, as she will tell us, is very, very close, as closely associated with these types of developments and connections. And uh, Dr. Zoe Crossland, who was our special guest, is based in the Department of Anthropology at Columbia University. Her interests are in symbolic archaeology and archaeologists of, uh, archaeologies of death and the body. She writes on Madagascar, forensics, and historic burial practices in the UK with a focus on the archaeology of the past 500 years and of the contemporary world. Dr. Crossland examines situations where new beliefs and practices are introduced and the conflicts and negotiations that are prompted by their introduction. She works through a variety of case studies, including the archaeology of mission and forensic exhumation, and we have talked about that certainly in the past, and she attempts to understand the material symbolic formations through which apparently incompatible attitudes and practices may effectively be negotiated, transformed, and I suspect ultimately understood. Dr. Crossland, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. 
Thanks. So let's start off by asking you how did your uh, how did you get into the archaeology of Madagascar, and was there a particular trajectory in your graduate training or in your early professional career that brought you to Madagascar? Great, thanks. Well, really, it was serendipity. Uh, I I went to uh, the University of Michigan for graduate school, and I had planned to work uh, in South America. Uh, until I took a course with Henry Wright there, and he uh, works in Madagascar and really inspired me to uh, to try some archaeology on the island myself. Yeah. And so you did your specialization on islands first, or I, <clears throat> Madagascar first, or how did that work? What was well, your focus as an archaeologist? Well, I was interested in, uh, you know, being a, stu- a student of Henry Wright's, I was interested in questions of uh, state formation, the emergence of uh, these complex polities that we call states. Uh, and in Madagascar, Henry has been looking at uh, a state in the region of Imerina in the Central Highlands for a long time now. And I decided for my PhD work to work on a polity that was nearby, really was in the frontier zone of the state, and try to understand the relationship between those two polities uh, and the way in which this, this frontier zone in the Andransai region of Madagascar uh, was, was drawn into the emergence of the state in the Merina uh, uh, during the 18th and early 19th centuries. When I was looking at your summaries and uh, scanning some of the work that you had done, one of the interesting ideas that struck me was that you had indicated that in the 19th and 20th centuries, if I'm not mistaken, Madagascar was uh, basically depopulated. And it's a little bit intriguing to me that now, uh, if you look at the information, I mean, there's close to 20 million people living there. Mm-hmm. What, happened? what happened? Yeah, well, what's interesting is the region where I worked was depopulated. So what we see is actually uh, a shift in that this area suddenly starts to empty out of people, and we start to see many people moving to this cent- the, the central sort of core of the state in Imerina, uh, which sees a, a rise in population around the same time. And what seems to be going on in the 18th century uh, and 19th century is a lot of slaving activity. So people are raiding, uh, particularly on this frontier zone. They're going in and raiding and taking people. And they're either being sold into the domestic slave markets in the economy or, of course, they're being sold out uh, abroad internationally. So we see some real uh, serious upheaval and disruption uh, to ways of life in the highlands during that period. Take us a little bit into this very fascinating uh, discussion that you're starting on the slave trade because a lot of the east coast of Africa was sort of centers of the slave trade. I mean, these were magnificent transition points for commerce and exchange, and not just of goods, obviously, but also of people like Zanzibar and places like that. How did Madagascar evolve into one of these central areas? And once you, you explain that, tell us a little bit about the early archaeology of it. Okay, sure. So uh, it, it, what seems likely is that the, these sort of major socio-political upheavals and developments that we see in the Central Highlands 
that lead to the emergence of this centralized polity with this king, this powerful king at the head, they, they seem to be built off the back of uh, the trade in enslaved people. The, really, the, the king is a very sort of uh, wily character and manages to figure out a way to co-opt uh, the, the trade in, in enslaved people and, and to really uh, make his fortune off the back of that. And the historian called Pierre Larson has written about this in some detail. Uh, and what's interesting is those people uh, coming from Madagascar, we have records of them even here in New York City. If you go to the African burial ground, there's a, you, there's a, um, a newspaper cutting there uh, on, on display uh, for, for an escaped slave who had come from Madagascar. So it's quite amazing to sort of think of that connection between uh, here and there. Uh, but but the, uh, the trade in... Uh, uh, the external trade in slaves so that, that was was actually outlawed by the Highland Kingdom in, in at the beginning of the 19th century under pressure from the British uh, but it continued uh, there was a lot of activity that continued on right through the 19th century because the, the Highland Kingdom although they claimed to control the island they didn't control the island at all uh, so there was a lot still going on on the coasts why don't you give us a little bit of background on the early archaeology mm. and what's known about the island? And I think one of the interesting points that, that your work seems to be bringing out is that despite the fact that this is, in fact, an island, it's, it's uh, divisible into ecological zones and subsistence mm -hmm. areas that gave rise to very specific organizational trends and adaptations. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that so that people sure. can understand that even within the context of the island, there were very distinct evolutions and, and adaptations that yeah, occurred. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, the first thing is that it's a huge island. I think, you know, it's something that people often don't realize. It's somewhere between the size of California and Texas. You know, it's absolutely mm. enormous. Right. Uh, so that means that it is, it's almost like a sort of small continent. It's got very distinct ecological zones. And so, you know, when you see uh, TV shows about the lemurs, they tend to focus on the rainforests. Those are found on the eastern escarpments, which gets a lot of water, um, a lot of strong winds. That gets hit by cyclones coming in from the Indian Ocean periodically. Uh, but actually, that's quite a narrow uh, strip of land. Mo much of the island is quite denuded of, of rainforest. Um, in the highlands, it's mostly uh, grasslands and also lots of irrigated rice terraces. And then over towards the west, you've got this nice sort of slow slope down towards the, the, uh, the west coast where you've got mangrove um, swamps uh, and uh, a lot of cattle past, uh, pastoralism. And then in the south, there's this very interesting uh, region uh, known as the spiny forest, which has all sorts of uh, endemic plant species that are just not found anywhere else, uh, but are very peculiar, sort of well adapted to this particular very dry, desertic uh, environment. What do we know about the earliest inhabitants of the individual zones and whether or not they had any contact with each other? Mm, well, the, until very recently, uh, it was thought that the first occupation seems to have been only about 2,000 years ago. And the evidence we had for that was very ephemeral. It was things like cut marks uh, made by iron knives on... on uh, on pygmy hippo bones and things that were found near the coast. But there's been work done by uh, Henry Wright and Bob Dewar as well uh, in the north of the island uh, where they've recently managed to get uh, good dates. I've pushed that right back for another 2,000 years. So they've effectively doubled the, the known history of the island, uh, human history. Uh, so back to about 2000 BC where they've got microliths and sort of hunting camps up right in the north on the coast. 
Uh, and so we, what we know of that early occupation is a very, very spotty, just some sort of tiny hints of these little camps uh, around about uh, on the coast. Um, another of the indicators of early occupation uh, is uh, cannabis pollen, actually, which seems to be introduced very early on. Uh, and to spread very quickly through through the island, right up into the highlands before people even get there. Um, wow. And Yeah, it's interesting. So, and that seems to be, you know, possibly uh, sailors arriving. Maybe they're planting it for for ropes. Maybe they're smoking it. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but the pollen, the pollen, you travel very quickly, and that's work that's been done by uh, David Burney. Um, and then also we have um, we can see changes. In, in the sort of ecology and environment that tell us something about human occupation of the island. Uh, so we, we have um, a shift after about 9,000, uh, sorry, 1,900 years ago um, uh, on the coast where we start to see more charcoal appearing and more um, grass pollen. So it seems to see, suggest that there's more burning of the landscape going on. Burning's always been present, but it increases after about a couple of thousand years ago. And then uh, right in the highlands, in the interior of the island, we start to see that about 1,300 uh, years ago. So it suggests that people are moving in gradually into the interior of the island and uh, clearing, clearing the woodland. It's kind of a mosaic of woodlands and grassland and uh, converting the landscapes for, for cattle pastoralism. Do we have any indications of where these very earliest settlers of the island came from? Well, the big clue is in the language. So the language, the Malagasy language, which is spoken across the whole island, is Austronesian. Uh, and the closest uh, cognate language that's been identified is, in, is spoken in the Burrito Valley of Borneo, so in Indonesian Borneo. So it looks like there was ocean crossing. Definitely, yeah, definitely. And, and, what, and the big question, of course, is, you know, how, how did people get there? <laughs> was it, you know, what, was it one migration, multiple migrations? What route did they take? Did they stop on the coast of Africa on the way? What's interesting is the genetic studies show that the island is really made up of a mix of African and sort of uh, Indonesian DNA uh, on both male and female lines. So we've got really sort of mixed population right from the get-go. So how that, how that population ended up speaking all of this, this one language that's really an Austronesian language is a really interesting question that's very poorly understood at the moment. And uh, I guess at this point, we're still trying to speculate whether or not it was sort of a well-known crossing route by ocean or whether they might have snaked through through a combination of uh, oceanic movements and possible uh, terrestrial movements as well. That's right. I mean, it's, it's likely that uh, people followed the edge of the Indian Ocean, um, right. you know, up and around, because we've got imported uh, ceramics in the interior of Madagascar, things like scraffiato coming from the Gulf. Uh, we've got celadon from a later period from China. So clearly, you know, by the time people are in the interior, which is really sort of from about the 14th, 13th, 14th century onwards AD, uh, they're really connected with this whole Indian Ocean world. Uh, but, of course, that's much later. How, how the original settlement um, took place is, is really something we're still trying to figure out. And we'll be back with this very fascinating discussion of the archaeology of Madagascar with our special guest, Dr. Zoe Crossland, after these words.
views, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with uh, Dr. Zoe Crossland, and we're talking about the archaeology of Madagascar. Those of you who have kids uh, certainly are familiar with the fact that this is an island off the uh, southeast coast of Africa. And um, I uh, have been discussing with Dr. Crossland about the antiquity of the occupation of the uh, of the island. And while the evidence is now pushing towards a date of about 4,000 years ago, most of the story is enveloped in about 2,000 years. So, uh, Dr. Crossland, why don't you tell us a little bit about dispersals and the political organizations that occurred, say, around 2,000 years ago, and what we know about the separation of different polities or political groups. Sure, yeah. So, in fact, most of the really good evidence we have is from the last 1,000 years. So even from the first sort of 1,000 years CE, really we're just getting sort of little rock shelters with quite sort of transient occupation. Uh, and then uh, we start to see sort of towards the end of the first millennium, we start to see sort of uh, slightly more developed settlements. And then a, re- a really uh, major development is on the northwest coast, a big town called Mahilaka. Uh, which is a walled town that seems to be very much oriented towards uh, towards the ocean, towards trade. Uh, it seems quite likely that people are trading things like mangrove um, poles, uh, perhaps chlorite schist as well. 
there's some evidence of uh, chloroches from Madagascar being found in East Africa. Uh, so we really start to see some major developments uh, around the turn of the first millennium. Uh, and from that point onwards, uh, the, particularly on the West Coast, we start to see uh, more uh, development of sort of urban, small urban centers. Again, not, not regional centers. They don't seem to have a kind of uh, settlement hierarchy sort of around them. They don't seem to be sort of um, uh, administering other villages or towns in the region, but very much oriented towards the ocean and towards the trade. And probably people at these sites, at these towns, sort of building their wealth uh, from from the trade with the Indian Ocean, uh, and then you know we, from the 14th century onwards, we've got some great evidence for uh, for mosques and um, Islamic uh, practices in this area. So really quite similar to sort of what's happening in the in, on East Africa and sort of the development of the Swahili uh, towns that we see in East Africa at the same time. So you have you have influences coming in from west to east to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I guess what really makes it makes it for a fascinating study is you have a really sort of a compressed compressed time frame here. And my question to you would be: At what point do we stop seeing, or is if there's even such a stoppage, do we stop seeing people migrating into Madagascar versus people just a population sort of developing internally within the island, and then ultimately getting involved in the in the in the trade uh, with with the African continent. I mean, is there some kind of a breaking breaking point, or some kind of a chronology that that would help us understand that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, in terms of the 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 movement of people from Indonesia, it's very it's very unclear at present. You know, sort of how that played out and when when people sort of stopped uh, migrating to Madagascar from that part of the world. But Madagascar has certainly seen a lot of uh, immigration from different areas, um, really kind of right through into the 19th century and into the, the present day. So, you know, even in the present now we have, in, in the 20th century, there are a lot of Vietnamese, for example, who arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it's really, it's something that's, that's continued. But you, in 19th century accounts, we, talk of, we see accounts of merchants coming, uh, living there who came from India originally. Um, of course, there were enslaved people brought in uh, from Mozambique uh, and from East Africa as well. So it's really been a, an island, a bit like Britain in many ways, that's seen right. you know, many, many different sort of incursions, different people kind of coming in for different reasons over the centuries. But but if you're talking about most of the action, let's just call it the action, mm-hmm. uh, occurring, say, within the past thousand years, you're giving some indications that there's some movement west to east. How, how about indigenous emergence? How about the evolution of uh, social organizations and uh, political organizations, distributions of even base, basic village structures? Mm-hmm. Are those emerging within the island context, or is that sort of associated with influences from elsewhere? Well, certainly in the highlands where I work, um, in the second millennium uh, CE, we do start to see the development of uh, polities emerging within that context. So not, not really um, people coming in that sort of probably to begin with hunting and fishing and maybe some pastoralism and then starting to settle down um, in villages. And then we start to see these villages kind of growing in size and then becoming defended. Um, really sort of classic uh, sequence 
of uh, increasing centralization, increasing hierarchy and social stratification over the centuries until we, we get the emergence of this, this polity, this state in the, in the late 18th century that's very well documented historically and also through indigenous oral histories as well. So uh-huh. we really know a lot about that. Uh, and it, of course, it's a really interesting case study if you're interested as an archaeologist in processes of state formation. You've sure. got this wonderful uh, historical case study that you can, you can uh, engage with and think about in relation to the deeper past. Now, are these villages, the emergence of these villages, uh, structures coalescing and, and sort of enlarging, I suspect, mm-hmm. do they follow any analog in the old world, or are they, because of their island situation, sort of evolving in, in their own way, or is it sort of a hybrid of influences from elsewhere and from the indigenous pattern of social and, and political organization? Yeah, I mean, it's very sort of... Um Okay, trying to think about which aspect to sort of talk about first, but the the what we see in the Highlands is certainly very Malagasy, if you like, very in orientation. I mean, they're very um, uh, concerned with uh, um, you know erecting things like standing stones. Tombs become very important very early on, and this is something we see continuing in the present day that people interact with the dead and that the dead play an important role among the living. Um, so we start to see monumental tombs. Uh, being built uh, really from the sort of 15th and 16th century and being located within the ditches of particular sites. So it seems that sort of ancestors and claims, ancestral claims to land become very important. So it's very much sort of indigenous idiom uh, that's being played out through landscape there. But of course, we can also make connections with uh, the similar kinds of processes of, of centralization and uh, increased kind of hierarchy and uh, stratification in other parts of the world as well uh, in terms of the ways in which particular uh, towns take on more significance and grow in in size and in uh, power and authority and are able to extract resources from the villages uh, around them. How big were the towns? Oh, good question. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, the, I mean, Antananarive, which is the capital, was uh, the biggest, uh, and that would have been a few thousand people uh, in the 19th century when, when we have uh, missionary accounts of the, of, the, of the town when people arrived. So it's fairly small population. Yeah. And was, is there any kind of, and I know this is a difficult question, is there any kind of pan-island identity or pan-island sociocultural characteristics that one could pick up in the archaeological record and is there any chronology for that or, or did it remain very distinctive until massive incursions, incursions of Europeans? Yeah, no, we've got, it's, it's interesting, you know, we've got certainly uh, trends that you can see across the island. So, for example, the early ceramics that we see uh, toward the end of the first millennium, beginning of the second millennium AD. Uh, those ceramics are broadly similar, similar kinds of shapes that are being used, uh, sometimes sort of similar forms of decoration. So there's, there, there are commonalities uh, there. Of course, the language as well, uh, the fact that everybody speaks the same language is another thing that unifies uh, people. But then there are also very distinct differences. So there are dialectical differences between different regions. Of course. Um, and, and people think of themselves as, as very different, you know, in the way that I might think of myself as English rather than Scottish. 
uh, being British, you know, the people in Madagascar will think of themselves as being uh, from Imerina in the highlands as opposed to being uh, from the region of Andrui in the south, for example. And so there's very distinct sort of identities that people uh, have depending on where they come from. And this this is retained into the present day? Yes, and I think in some ways it was exacerbated uh, by French colonial uh, politics, which uh, took these different sort of designations for different people in different parts of the island, which were really more sort of uh, designations that related to political affiliation uh, and started to racialize them and sort of um, create them as ethnic identities. Um, and so in some ways they've become more sort of static and stable uh, than, than they probably were in the past as a result of that. And, and the major, uh, when, when was the major incursion of the Europeans? Is there a time frame when the French sort of really came in and sort of made their imprint on the landscape and on the populations? Yeah, so we've got early, we've got Portuguese coming in early on to the 16th century and French as well in the 17th century. But the island actually isn't colonized until the very end of the 19th century. Uh, and what you see over the course of the 19th century are, uh, uh, you know, the Brits trying to get in there, the French trying to get in there, um, all trying to sort of establish a, a toehold on the island, make claims to the island, um, because it's strategically, uh, you know, a useful, a useful uh, site within the Indian Ocean. Um, but it's, it's 1895 that the French actually come in and, uh, and topple the, 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 the queen, who, the reigning queen in the, in the center of the island. And and so that was a major overhaul. I mean, mm-hmm. that was an obviously uh, a game changer, as as we would probably call it today, right? It was, yeah. I mean, at that point, they they got rid of the monarchy, um, and I mean, they did some in- very interesting things. They uh, exhumed some of the old, all of the old monarchs uh, from the burial grounds and brought them all back to Antananarivo and had them buried in the in the the center of the of the town uh, where the old palace had been they turned the palace into a museum um, and so they re- they definitely realized that these monarchs could become sort of the, the remains of these uh, dead monarchs could become you know dangerous to the sites where resistance might coalesce so they really wanted to try and control the dead by bringing them into the center of the of the city and uh, and also trying to convert the the palace into this museum and take sort of make it something of the past rather than something that was of ongoing relevance in the present and we'll get back with our discussion on the colonization of madagascar with dr zoe crossland after these words The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Living your best life isn't just about fitness and health. It's also about living a better life emotionally and creating balance. 
You know where you want to be, but what steps do you take to get there? Listen to Good Health for a Great Life with host Rick Barnabo. We'll bring you guest experts and tools to help you connect the dots from who and where you are to who and where you want to be. It's time to take responsibility for your life. Listen every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our guest, Dr. Zoe Crossland from Columbia University, who has done extensive work on the island of Madagascar, and specifically in uh, the the realm of symbolic archaeology, the dead, monuments to the dead, and we are sort of trying to chronologically describe the developments that led to... um, the type of archaeology that Dr. Crossland has done. And Zoe, one of the things that that intrigued me about your presentation here is that you're saying that when uh, sort of the classic European imprint on the island occurred, which uh, you were saying is basically in a large scale occurred around 19th century, there were uh, all of a sudden they were encountering monuments to the dead, which I assume had something to do with how your dissertation and follow-up research emerged. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, what the, the, one of the things that's very interesting about Madagascar is that the, the dead are very important uh, within the lives of the living. And this, this is something that sort of is true across the whole island. Um, so that in the in the central highlands where I work, for example, people, you could say that when you die, you don't sort of go to the land of the dead, but you just hang around. And really, the living sort of live among the dead. Right. We're, we're the transient ones. We're just passing through on our way, on our way to becoming ancestors. Um, so and so it's a very different way of imagining the world. You know that you, 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 I mean, It makes a lot of sense if you think about it that we're living here among all the things that were built by people who are dead now, and you know the roads that were built in the schools and the colleges, you know, all these things are, are things that were built by people who've gone before us. And so we're sort of still living here amongst, amongst the dead in that sense. Uh, and so what you find historically when you look at the oral histories that were written down in the later 19th century and you look at historical texts, you find that the dead were really a presence, you know, for people at that time, that there are accounts of people being possessed by the dead queens um, and, you know, coming to the capital, dancing along the roads to the capital uh, and making demands, uh, you know, in the name of the dead queen, for example, or um, 
there are, you know, big standing stones that are placed uh, in to me- memorialize the dead and are very important sites where people go to sort of talk to the dead and interact with them. But you're getting into this very sort of, I won't say dangerous, but mm. certainly questionable ground of, of, of the semiotics, the symbolism, and what it may mean to indigenous people, and, mm-hmm. and what that perception is, say, amongst the Europeans who come in there, and uh, as it is everywhere else in the world, they sort of take over. Mm-hmm. And how does that interaction occur, and how do the indigenous people explain to the French, and is there any kind of a melding of ideas or an exchange of ideas or, or, or how, how, is, how is that symbolism transmitted? Yeah, well, that's, that, that's really sort of my starting point. It's really sort of thinking about how, how can we take account sort of archaeologically and historically of the dead as actors. If they were understood as actors in the past, how can we right. try and sort of understand that from our mm-hmm. perspective, you know, things that we might think of as imaginary or, you know, non-existent. And certainly Europeans thought of as imaginary and non-existent. Uh, and one of the ways I've looked at that is through the archaeology of mission. Uh, so in the early 19th century, uh, the London Missionary Society sent out a party of missionaries to Madagascar to convert people uh, and and it's very interesting to see how that played out uh, and how the the missionaries in in developing the mission actually had a very different understanding of what was taking place from the the Highlanders, the people in the Highlands, uh, who you know it seemed like they were engaged upon this shared project of building schools, uh, but actually it seems that there were there were very different sort of um, symbolic resonances, if you like, of the mission uh, for both different groups. And, of course, that was unsustainable in the long run. And, and what were the perceptions? I mean, how do these perceptions change? Mm. And uh, what did you pick up in terms of coming in there as a, as a researcher with a, presumably an open mind? And, and, mm-hmm. and how, how was your sort of concept of semiotics and spirituality uh, changed, if you will, by, by what you looked at as an archaeologist, as, as an individual coming in from the outside? Right. Well, I wanted, I mean, what I wanted to do is sort of understand these, the sort of signs of the dead, if you like, you know, to think about, because what we do as archaeologists is that's what we look at. We look at the signs that are left by people who are now gone, and we use those signs to try and interpret and to write stories about the past. Right. So I wanted to sort of think about that critically. Um, and we have, you know, the sort of theory that we've used in the past for thinking about signs has come from linguistics. So it's tended to be a sort of theory that's, that's, really been about meaning and about how, you know, words uh, represent particular concepts. And that's not very useful for an archaeologist because we Mm. deal with material things. Uh, So I turned to a semiotician who was writing in the 19th century called Charles Sanders Peirce. Mm -hmm. And I use his notion of of signs uh, where he he talks about how... um, you know, signs can be things, they can be material things, obviously. Um, uh, they can be practices, the way somebody does something can, can be a sign of something. We all know that sort of intuitively. Um, and then he also talks about how interpretation itself isn't, doesn't just have to be something that you do in your head. It doesn't just have to be a sort of a meaning that we give to something. But it can be an embodied response. So, for example, if you held open a car door for me, my response would be to go in and sit down. I wouldn't necessarily think about it first. I'd just sort of do it, and that would be a form of interpretation. Right. Yeah, and then he also talks about how objects themselves can uh, interpret things. So that if you, um, you know, if somebody, 
for example, dies and asks their descendants to raise a standing stone for them, that standing stone and the work that's undertaken in erecting it is a kind of interpretant, as, as Peirce would say, or an interpretation of the, of the desires and wishes of the dead. And so the stone itself is a sort of interpreting thing that does things as well. It draws people to it and it, it, it interprets the desires, the desire of that person to be memorialized. And so this is a much more useful kind of way of thinking about signs and symbols for archaeologists because it allows us to really think about the complexities of signs in the material world, in the sort of world of practices and of doing rather than just of thinking. So how did your perspective on this change as you started to get into the semiotics of it, the symbolism of it, and were you able to make a connection that you can effectively transmit between how people were conceiving or, well, let's say projecting what they wanted to project mm -hmm. and how others perceived it? Yeah, definitely. So the, the looking at the mission uh, very interesting because the, what, when the missionaries arrive into the highlands in 1820, uh, within a few years they've established many, many schools around the capital and it looks like a really successful uh, Christian mission. You know, people seem to be really going for this. They, they're establishing schools, they've got lots and lots of students um, and so on the face of things it looks like, you know, what the London Missionary Society wanted to happen is happening. Um, but when we sort of start to delve a little deeper, both into the landscape organization of the mission and into the historical sources, we can see that actually there's very different things going on there um, and that the missionaries are understanding that process in a way that's very different from how the Highlanders are understanding it. And that's, that's really fascinating, you know, for, for understanding uh, mission and for understanding what happened in, in Madagascar in the early 19th century. So these, these Welsh missionaries, they come, they come from West Wales and they're, they're Welsh-speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, it's a very rural part of, Welsh, of West Wales, uh, quite sort of poor and impoverished after the Napoleonic Wars. And so they, they value education very, very highly. They also value translation uh, very highly. Obviously, they have the Welsh language Bible. And so they take these sort of values with them to Madagascar. And, you know, they write, they write letters to the directors of the London Missionary Society before they leave, saying things like, you know, we'll need to take plows and harrows with us to teach these mm -hmm. people cultivation. And then they get there, and they're confronted with these amazing landscapes full of terraced, irrigated <laughs> rice paddies, and right. <laughs> have to adjust very quickly, you know, and sort of really um, reconfigure their expectations. Uh, and they get there, and the other thing that's very interesting is that the, the buildings they encounter in Madagascar are actually not so different from what they left behind in Wales. Uh, they were taught in this school that's called the Academy, and it's, very, you know, it's a very kind of important site within uh, West Wales. But when you go to visit it, it's not much more than a thatched mud cottage, and mm -hmm. it actually looks identical to the buildings and houses that they encountered when they got to Madagascar, which is very interesting. You know, you kind of complicates that narrative of sort of missionary encounter and arrival in, in uh, you know, bringing civilization so-called so uh, to these foreign, foreign climes. Uh, and they quickly get drawn into the court of the king. Uh, and, and one of them writes home, you know, saying, saying, gosh, it's really amazing how far I've come. I'm living in the court of a mighty, mighty prince. Um, and, and this king, Radama, uh, really sort of takes him on board and, and sets up a mission school right in the courtyard of his palace and he trains his heir and some other noble children there in this missionary school. 
But, but um, I guess the real question is, mm. do they really accept the uh, primary objective of the missionaries, which right. is basically to introduce a form of Christianity? Right. Or is the disjuncture between transmission and perception so great that each party is sort of getting something from the other? That's right. I think it's the latter. So, um, I mean, what, for one, the king doesn't convert. So they, they right. never... He, he, he goes along with the missionaries, but he doesn't convert. Uh, and they, the missionaries establish two schools in the capital, one for the nobles and one for the commoners. But they don't really get too many students for the first few years. And then the king has this, makes this big speech where he announces that he's going to combine these schools and that they're going to be the source of future mission schools in the districts around and that he will send out students trained at these schools into the surrounding districts. And from that moment onwards, suddenly people become incredibly enthusiastic and start um, campaigning, if you like, to have schools in their villages. And, and is what, that because of the, what the king says, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because of what the king says. And what, seem, what seems to be going on is that um, Maurice Bloch, who's an anthropologist of Madagascar, Highland Madagascar, has written about the way in which the monarchs sort of built their political power through exchanging blessing, very sacred blessing that came from the dead, from their powerful ancestors. And that the monarch would sort of give their blessing out to the people and the people would return it with their own sort of inferior blessing, which was given in the, the form of tribute, of course, right. and, and labor. Uh, and so what happens is that the attendance at schools becomes a form of royal labor. You're, you're basically working for the king by going to school and learning to read and write. And by doing that, you're sort of establishing yourself within an exchange relationship with the king where you're getting this very powerful ancestral blessing from the king and exchanging, in exchange, giving your labor to him. Uh, and so it's really interesting because there, there are the missionaries thinking, this is great, we're converting all these people. Uh, but what's really going on seems to be that the, the king is very cleverly reworking the sort of network of power within the, the kingdom in order to sort of bring particular villages and groups into his sort of uh, exchange of blessing and to his ability to sort of co-op their labor and tribute and to sort of give them uh, political recognition in return. So, so there's the rub right there. Mm -hmm, yeah. And we'll be back after <laughs> these words with a final segment of this very amazing discussion on the emergence of Madagascar and its recognition archaeologically with our special guest, Dr. Zoe Crossland. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. 
Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We're talking about uh, the archaeology of Madagascar and the archaeology of symbolism in, 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 in a greater sense. And my guest, Dr. Zoe Crossland from Columbia University Department of Anthropology, is sort of bringing up a couple of connections that archaeology, a couple of junctures that archaeology and the study of symbolisms and signs merge together. And Zoe, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this particular case study uh, provided us with some kind of a perspective on the use of symbols and the understanding of the material cultural record, which is what our archaeology is to most people. Right, that's right. So, it's, you know, one of the things we do as archaeologists is we try to sort of understand the signs of the past, you know, try to understand the past through these material traces, these material signs that have been left behind for us to look at. But we don't really have a great theory of how that works at the moment, we don't, which is, you know, strange, uh, given that it's so it's central to what we do. Um, and part of that is because we've been relying very much on sort of linguistic theories of, of signs which uh, have had their own problems and have, you know, perhaps led people to be a little suspicious of symbolic uh, archaeologies because they sort of feel that they see these theories have suggested that perhaps you can just read any old meaning into, into the signs that you see before. Well, that's before the thing, it. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what this sort of more, uh, this pragmatist Persian approach that comes from this uh, pragmatist philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce does is it allows us not only to sort of think about the sort of tangible reality of signs and of the interpretations as well around them, but also to think about the way in which they can sort of act back on the sign relations so that you can't just say anything and that not just any sort of permutation is possible. And we can see that with the missionaries. So, for example, even though they don't talk about it in their letters, uh, it's clear that they had a sense that there was something going on that was not quite right <laughs> in, this, in the establishment of these schools. And there are, some, you can, there are letters where they argue with each other uh, and sort of talk to the directors of the missionary society about what the other missionaries are doing wrong, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, and one of them, at one point, accuses the Welsh missionaries of having taken the price of blood from the king. And I think what they mean by that, uh, they're referring to the, the money taken by Judas, um, you know, to betray Christ, basically. And so they're saying that 
they're betraying the mission. And the reason that they're betraying the mission is because they've been receiving uh, silver coins and other, um, other goods from people in the mission schools around. And so they're sort of, uh, they've established themselves in an exchange relationship with these people um, and with the king. And I think they can sort of see that there's something going on here, that there's more going on. There's this strange sort of reciprocity going on with the king uh, that's perhaps working at cross-purposes towards the mission. And by looking semiotically, we can sort of look at the way in which these very different signs, the same signs, the sign of the mission's growth, very rapid growth and the increase in the number of schools, had very different reference, if you like. It was referring to very different things. So for the missionaries, it was referring to the growth of Christianity. They saw the growth of Christianity in the growth of the schools. But for the king and for the highlanders, what they see is they see a continuance of tradition, a reworking of tradition, a flow of blessing from the ancestors to the living and back uh, through the mission schools. And it's clear that at some point, those two different reference are going to start to uh, come into conflict with each other and sort of act back on how that sign itself is understood. And that's what's happening when the missionaries accuse uh, some of their colleagues of, of, sort of taking the price of blood, that they're starting to understand there's more going on there than meets the eye. Well, it's, it's a fascinating interpretation. I mean, you know, I would think that us being Westerners, we look at the missionaries' perspective as if they're sort of winning. Mm. You know, they are extending their spheres of influence, they're expanding their domains, mm -hmm. whereas the Highlanders probably have a perspective on this that says, our from what I'm hearing from you, mm -hmm. our tradition carries on, That's and it right. has the capability of incorporating other elements to it. That's right. The, the tradition is continuing and it's, it's changing but continuing at the same time. And as you say, it's incorporating. So it's showing the strength and power of the king and its, and its ability to incorporate these new ideas. What a fascinating perspective that is. Mm, isn't it? And it, it's, it's interesting, I think, for us as archaeologists to reflect on that too because uh, there's something there about the way that we interpret as archaeologists. What we bring when we look at archaeological evidence, how we recognize that evidence and how we sort of recognize the past through that evidence is going to draw very much on our own past experiences. Um, just as the missionaries are drawing on their past experiences to understand what's happening, uh, they, they don't really understand the way that the Highlanders are understanding it because they don't have that, that sort of background. And so that, that's something we need to think about archaeologically when we interpret uh, our archaeological signs. Yeah, to me, it, it, it just suggests that, that that entire Western concept of linearity mm. is uh, something that we're sort of cultivating. We, we, we have grown that way, and, and we certainly look at things in that kind of a black and white perspective, I think, very much more than many of the indigenous cultures, which sort of look at, at, at a holistic perspective mm. and uh, just sort of look at things in, in, in a collective sense. Mm -hmm. As if it's like the convergence of very different influences and how their own cosmogony and their own concepts of, of the structure of the universe is, is really very, very absorbing. And mm -hmm. uh, it's very different. And, and yet it doesn't necessarily have to cause conflict. What happened ultimately? 
Well, what happened is actually quite interesting. Radama, the king, died in 1828. And when he died... Uh, He'd only been in power about sort of 10 years or so. Um, and when he died, there were a lot of sort of old retainers from his father's uh, reign. And they took that moment to seize the reins of power. And they installed his uh, senior wife as queen. But they were mm -hmm. really working behind the scenes. And they uh, moved to push the missionaries out uh, and to, to really disarticulate the mission from the, from the, um, the court and to try and uh, sort of lay claim to the older ways, the sort of traditional ways, as they put it. Um, and the mission largely left the island from about 1835 onwards until the 1860s when it returned under a new queen, under, uh, under a different king, rather, uh, and then uh, started to sort of develop again and again became very um, successful in the later 19th century. Interesting. So it just keeps growing in a way. It does, yeah, it keeps growing, but it's always tied into the politics of the state. And when you look of at course. maps of the mission, what's really fascinating is that the growth of the mission maps directly onto the growth of the state. So as the state expands out from that central highland core into other regions of Madagascar, so the mission schools also extend into those areas. And you can see how it's really being used by, by the the monarchs and by the prime ministers as an instrument of, of governance as well. And then all of a sudden we're in the 21st century, right? That's it. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for participating in the program, Zoe. Thank it you was, very much. Uh, it flew by, and, and this is a really fascinating discussion, and hopefully we may be able to have a follow-up on this because we really didn't even get into the the dramatic population expansion, I guess, in Madagascar. I mean, there are 20 million people there, aren't there? That's, uh, that's, that's a topic for another time. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank uh, Dr. Zoe Crossland for spending this lovely hour with us, and we will see you next time. Thank you, and uh, see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.